Lord God, You are mighty and You are good and You are holy and You are over all our great authority. And Jesus, we accept we declare in this place all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to You. And so we gather in the name of Jesus and in the worship of Father, Son, and Spirit with our hearts open, Lord, to receive from You this night. Father, as is typical this time of year as the days are shortening and a little more gray, we tend to be a little more tired and I just pray that for those of us who have had long days already, that Your Word would feed us and energize us and invigorate us, Lord. Not just the physical sensation, but spiritually, I ask that You would tap our hearts tonight. Bring encouragement as only You can. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that You would speak to each heart as You so desire to do. That I would get out of the way. And truly, Lord, that each one of us tonight would get out of the way and let You speak to us. That we would not block anything You have for us or ignore or miss Your Word. And I pray for the strength and the comfort and the blessing that just comes of sitting at Your feet and listening to Your great truth. Holy Spirit, Come and be our rabbi now in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles. We've already begun our second round through the Scriptures at breakneck speed. This is an amazing chapter, foundational to our faith, our understanding of Really, our relationship with God. Our understanding of Him as as our Lord. So, listen closely. Track verse by verse. Um, Tonight, we're going to look at the beginning of all the ruined lives of human history. The pain starts here. As it always does, the pain starts with disobedience to the Lord God's law. And it can be a simple thing or it can be a great big thing. It really doesn't matter. The issue is the heart and the issue is one of disobedience versus discipleship. Following after the Lord or disdaining His Word. Some question whether the account in Genesis chapter 3 is a true story or simply a morality tale. There are many out there who say, yeah, it's, it's not, I mean, a, a talking snake and, you know, Adam and Eve and a garden run around naked and big leaves and all that stuff. It's, it's just, it's just there as a parabolic lesson so we can learn something about sin. It was really written for the children, right? Well, if you believe Jesus and if you believe the apostle Paul, you must accept Genesis 3 as historical fact, as Not just some kind of allegory, but as a true, legitimate story, an historical truth, both treated as history. It is foundational to New Testament theology. 
That is understanding Jesus coming into the world. It is basic. And it is the basis of the New Testament contention, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. That bases itself in Genesis chapter 3. But let's go back, all the way back to the very end of creation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, which says, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Do you know what that tells us? The serpent was good. As part of creation, the serpent was part of the very good. So we understand that it was not created inherently evil, but as with all snakes in the grass, (laughs) subtlety was a natural characteristic. Subtlety, shrewdness, cunning, this kind of thing, it can be a good thing. Jesus said, be gentle as doves and shrewd as serpents. So there's something to be said for wisdom in terms of a cunning and shrewd type of wisdom. And there is something in the serpent. I believe this is why the devil chose the serpent to inhabit. But the serpent itself, if it is among all of creation, was itself part of the very good. Chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Crafty here does have a negative connotation. At least it can lean that way. The word is arum. And, and note that because we're about to enter into a word play, a Hebrew word play. doesn't work in any other language, which is why I contended on Sunday that Hebrew was the original language. Arum is the word. A-R-U-M. And it means subtle, cunning, or shrewd. And it's a wordplay because it's set against another word, and that is arumim. Arumim and arum are not the same root word. They're two completely different words, but they sound alike, and they're a wordplay in the Hebrew. Arumim means naked. Back in verse 25 of chapter 2, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So you've got on the one hand, they're arumim, but the serpent is arum. And in the Hebrew, you'd hear that and get that there's something being played off here. They were exposed. He was shrewd. They were uncovered. He was sharp. And again, I believe that's why Satan chose to possess the serpent. Well, what was the serpent? Everybody wants to know. Did he stand upright? Well, apparently. Talk about that more on Sunday. Did he have arms and legs? Did he look like a basilisk or a dragon? Or what did he look like? Were you there? See, I wasn't. But I know the serpent was created by God and then possessed by the devil in the garden. Wait, so the devil can possess animals? Well, the demons called Legion didn't possess the swine just to ham it up. That's Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8. Demons can possess the unsuspecting creature. So we see with the pigs, we see with the serpent here, yeah, a a demon has the ability to possess an animal, animal life, those who are unprotected by the indwelling Spirit of God. And that's important, and I've shared this before, I don't believe that those born again can be possessed. I don't believe that those who bear the Spirit of the living God, those who have given their lives to Jesus, followers of Jesus Christ, I don't believe can be possessed. Oppressed? Yeah. Deceived? That's another matter. 
Just as Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that's our key verse for the night. That like Eve, we could be deceived. And what happens when we're deceived? We are drawn away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Literally, it's the simplicity and purity unto Christ. Just simple faith. Pure, honest, unadulterated faith. Naked faith. Unashamed faith. Not crafty, cunning, soulish faith. The best protection against any demonic activity is the simplicity and the purity unto Christ. Keep it simple. Trust Him. Take Him at His word. Don't get crafty with God. Just be simple and pure. Remember that at least at the first, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. So again, you see simplicity, you see purity. Shame and confusion come after the fall. Follow the sin of man and woman. What preceded it? What came before the fall? What really led to the fall? And the answer is very simple. It's pride. It's pride unto sin, unto the fall. And I'm not talking about the pride of Eve. I'm not talking about the pride of Adam. I'm talking about the pride of Satan himself. If you turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28, I'll show you this. Ezekiel 28, about midway into your Bibles. Ezekiel 28 is an interesting chapter. tells us a lot about Satan. And actually, it's a two-part chapter. The first part is talking about the leader of Tyre, who himself is possessed. Because you get halfway down through the chapter, and you get down to about verse 12, and now you're talking about the king of Tyre. Well, who's the king of Tyre? He's the one who rules the leader of Tyre. The one who possesses him, and that is Satan. How do we know? Listen closely. Son of man, Ezekiel 28, verse 12, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. Okay, the leader of Tyre was never in Eden, right? This one was. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets, or literally pipes and timbrels. We might say tambourines and flutes. That is, this gorgeous, amazing, beautiful being that was in the garden was himself music. Flowed through him. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who, interesting, covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And down in verse 17, your heart was lifted up. Because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. What does that tell us? Very simply, that sin didn't begin on planet earth. Sin began in heaven. Sin began with the rebellion of Satan 
Revelation 12 tells us that a third of the stars were uh, knocked out of heaven by his tail. So what we're talking about is likely demons that also fell with him. That was the first sin. It wasn't the sin in the garden. What preceded the sin in the garden was the sin of Satan and his pride that then led to the fall and led to the temptation that would lead to the prideful sin of Eve and then of Adam. But there in the garden, that sly devil made his play. Verse 1 continuing, and he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? I want you to catch something right up front. This is the first time since the very beginning of chapter 2 that he is no longer referred to as the Lord God. Satan doesn't call him the Lord God, he just calls him God. And I think he's dropped the name on purpose. The adversary never once in Scripture refers to God as Lord because he has rejected the Lordship of God. From the point of his prideful fall from heaven, God was no longer his Lord. He's his own Lord. Those who follow him would follow suit. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't refer to the Lord as God. God is a legitimate title. But what I'm saying is, as Paul said, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Lordship. Lordship is is only by God's Spirit within you. Acknowledging God, following Him as Lord, obeying Him as Lord. But He's not the Lord of Satan. Even the demons, note this, during Jesus' ministry, they tried to call Him out many times. They would call Him the Holy One of God. They would call Him the Son of God. But they never once call Him Lord. And you might think, well, that's obvious. Exactly. You see, those who are opposed to God cannot stand under His Lordship because they have rejected it completely. Indeed. As God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And here's where Eve's trouble begins. She enters into, she entertains a dialogue with the devil. The fact that she's even having conversation with him is itself problematic. She also departs from the lordship of God. Note that she just calls him God. She does not call him the Lord God. You know, it's easier to sin when we distance ourselves. When he's no longer Lord to us, or when he's no longer named Yahweh, when instead he's Elohim, it's a little bit more distant, a little easier when we push off a bit. And she entertains a question that the Lord God had already settled in his own word. She goes to answer a question he's already answered. The question, indeed, has God said this? Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Anytime you hear a question like, indeed, has God really said? That should immediately be followed by, God has said, indeed. Yes, God has said. Question answered. Because our final word is His word. What He has said stands. 
And all, and I'm not saying questions are a problem. Questions are fine as long as they're honest questions seeking honest answers in the Scriptures. That's what we do as we study the Word, right? We question things. Why is this here, Lord? What does this mean, Lord? How do I apply that in my life, Lord? But questions that are floated, that do nothing but put you on the defensive or destabilize your faith, these are from the adversary. Indeed, has God really said that? Is Genesis 3 a legitimate story? Did that really happen? And people will do that. The cynic will follow all the way through Scripture, challenging this and that and the other, throwing out question after question to destabilize faith. Simplicity and purity. Just believe. Just trust Him. It is not foolish. Trust me in this. It is not foolish simply to trust the Lord and to take Him at His word. The more literally we will take His word and the more we will simply trust that what He has given us is legitimate and true and factual and historical. The stronger our faith, the more we will bear up in this world. But Eve is entertaining the question now, answering the devil. And she's shaken in this moment from her simplicity and purity unto the Lord. She drops Yahweh again for the more distant sounding Elohim. By the way, do you ever do that? Stop naming Him God? Stop referring to Him as Lord? Or perhaps just ignore Him for a few minutes? Because you know what you're about to enter into is not something He wants you to enter into. How many people when they're about to sin say, Oh Lord Jesus, help me. Or, Jesus, I'm having a great time with you today, but i got this sin i got to take care of. I'll be right back to you, Lord. No, we distance. The Bible says, Psalm 73, 28, But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So Eve is rattled. She now agrees with the devil and simply calls him God, not putting Lord out there. And then she doubles down by adding to his word. God has said, she says, you shall not eat from it or touch it. Well, he didn't say that. All he said was don't eat from it. He said nothing about touching it. Now, we don't know if Eve added that. We don't know if maybe Adam added that. when he Because Eve wasn't there. Back when the Lord told Adam the the prescription about the tree, back in chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. He said nothing about touching it. Well, maybe Adam, in passing it along, added that in there, you know, like building a little extra fence for the woman's sake. Or perhaps Eve added it herself because she was a little rattled and needed to shore up what she thought the Word says. It's a sure sign that someone's losing faith in God when they add to the Word. When they put more in there. Just to be sure we're not messing up. Just to be sure we've got ourselves covered. We shore it up with extra conditions and constraints and commentary. Adding to the Word of God. The Babylonian Talmud puts it this way. One who adds to God's words actually detracts from God's words. God doesn't need your help or mine to make His Word a bit stronger. You come across a verse and you think, well, I don't know, that one by itself, I better, you know, build it up a bit. God doesn't need the help. 
His word will stand. And he has told us from the beginning to the end. Don't add to my word. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Proverbs chapter 30 verse 5. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Galatians 1 verse 8. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, He's to be accursed. All the way out to Revelation 22.18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Do you know why we have lists of verses up here? It's to help me not add to the word of God. It's to be sure that the word that we're speaking, we're clear, this comes from His word. If I was just firing off verses from memory, I may be getting it wrong. I might add to, I might detract from. This way you can look it up and be sure that I'm not lying to you. By the way, there's a name for adding to the word of God. We have a a word for it. Legalism. Legalism adds to the word and it kills Adding to God's Word, legalizing it, structuring it in such a way that, that there's more to it and there's more to follow. And I, I, you know, honestly, I, I think about the laws of Sabbath in Talmud and then Jewish writings that go beyond the Word of God. Just pile law upon law upon law is legalism and it kills. And it may seem a little thing here. Don't eat from that tree. One little law, not that big a deal... But it's the little things that do the greatest amount of damage. And even Eve, just adding, don't touch it. She just adds the one phrase. Nor shall you touch it. Well, that's not adding too much, is it? It's a danger. It's a problem. It's a killer. She drops his name. And then she drops his lordship by adding to his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 says, Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. When I add to the Word of God, guess what I'm adding? Flesh. Just tapping in my own thoughts, my own additions. But the Word of God is spirit and life. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. What's interesting is in rabbinical tradition, so we can't say that this is what happened, but the rabbis will teach that when the serpent says this, you surely will not die, he suddenly pushed Eve up against the tree so that she would touch it. We shall not eat from the tree or touch it and we'll die. Here you go. You will not die. And they say, she touches the tree and realizes, I didn't die. So the word that she added, you shall not touch it, became the standard. Now, I don't know if that's true. I want to make that clear because I don't want to add to the word. (laughs) 
But he does make this statement. He goes right head to head with the word of God. You surely will not die. He just called God a liar. He just maligned the character of God. You will not die. So what we actually read going on here is the serpent starts out with what we could call a wedge question. It's there to cast doubt, kind of wedge its way in. And then, then he contradicts God. And then he brazenly calls God a liar. And this is, this is the way he works. I've told you before, Satan has a very thin playbook. Introduce doubt, contradict the Lord, call him a liar. And it is easy prey. John 8.44, Jesus said the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, Jesus said, you do not believe me. That is one of the greatest tragedies of all human history. Think about that. Believing the liar while denying the one who is truth. I speak the truth and you don't buy it. Verse 5, the serpent continues after saying, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it's just lie upon lie. Because now he's saying, you'll be like God. Guess what? They already were. They were already in the image of God. They were already in the likeness of God. You'll be like God. Well... What are you trying to tell me? You can be more spiritual than you are. More God-like. And all you have to do is this one thing. Listen, experiential knowledge is not the key to godliness. That is not how you get there. You do not become more spiritual by doing fleshly things. How do you become more spiritual? One simple word, faith. Faith. Our spirituality, our godliness comes of trusting the one true God. The one who is true in and of himself. The devil says, no, 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 if you experience this, if you do this, if you have this this thing, this feeling, this reaction, then, then you're godly. No. No. What good is knowledge if faith isn't the fruit? If hope isn't cultivated, if we have not love... What good is all the knowledge in the world? But the shrewd satanic serpent does something with this final lie. He toys with Eve's pride. He says, you'll be like God. You'll be a godly woman, Eve. Don't you want to be a godly woman? How many of you ladies here tonight would like to be known as a godly woman? (laughs) It's good that you raised your hands. That's a good thing. You're all going, I don't know now. How many of you men would like to be known as a godly man? I mean, my hand is way up on that. Yes. Satan says, there's a way to do it. And it's a way that shows everyone else how godly you are. And he taps right into flesh and soul. You know, I was thinking about this earlier today, that male pride tends to be more flesh and soul related. Uh, male pride, that's, you know, we, we're, we're more about the strength and the look and the, and the, the thinking and the, the, the flesh and soul side of things. Female pride tends to be more spiritual. 
And I know that's a generalization, and I hope I've just offended everybody. <laughs> but, but think about it. Isn't that true? Isn't it true, ladies, that, that you tend to get into more trouble when it's about spiritual things, where us guys, it's stupid male tricks. You know, it's, it's the flesh, and it's the soul, and, you know... And Satan knows how to attack. And his lie here of instant godliness, as I already said, it misrepresents the character of God. Because what he's saying here is God's holding out on you. God's got something for you that he hasn't given you yet. He doesn't want you to have it. He's holding back. Jesus said in Matthew 7:11, "If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him?" He is a good good father, we say. He is a gift giver. He loves to give to his children. And by the way, in Luke 11:13, Jesus, Luke what he heard or what was reported to him probably from another teaching of Jesus is, "How much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask?" Not only will He give you every good thing that is under the heavens, but He will give you of His Spirit. You want to be godly? That's how. It's not looking a certain way or experiencing a certain thing. It's the download of of His Spirit, which comes of trusting in Him. You become a godly man, a godly woman, a spiritual man or woman by the Holy Spirit within you. God wants to give that. He's not holding back. Anything good from you. In fact, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, James 1.17. God wants to give good. Loves to give gifts to His children. That is His heart for you and for me, even His Holy Spirit. Satan is just messing with all of this and he's undermining the character and nature of God and he's calling God a liar and he's introducing doubt and he's messing with the head of this woman. How fast has he gone from a question to an absolute liar? I mean, seconds here? If you just read from verse 1 down through verse 5, how long does it take? I mean, it goes like that. And next thing you know, she's hooked. He is sly. He is cunning. He knows how to work a conversation. Now, in Eve's defense, she was ignorant of his wiles. She was naked. She was exposed. She was caught off guard. That's no excuse. I mean, after all, she only had one law. It's not like she had a lot to remember here. Just don't eat that. Done. (laughs) But this is all new, so we can cut her a little bit of slack. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us very clearly, 1 Timothy 2.14, the woman was deceived. She was deceived. He got her. Again, Paul to the church of Corinth, I don't want you to be deceived like Eve. How do we avoid that? Simplicity and purity. Keep it simple. Keep it honest and open before the Lord our God. And understand, 1 Corinthians 10.12, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Because the moment you think, I am strong enough to handle anything Satan throws at me, is the moment you're at your weakest. The strongest follower of Jesus is the one who says, I am a 28 pound weakling without the Spirit of the Lord in me. Lord, I would fall flat on my face if not for you right here. Keep it here. Be here, Lord. 
2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, which is why we're taking a little extra time to look at his schemes right now. Let's not be ignorant. Same devil in the garden is the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour today. 1 Peter 5.8. Look it up. Double check the words. Ephesians 6.11, Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Well, Eve had no armor. She was just standing there before him. And she was wide open to this attack. And so she was deceived. By the way, where's Adam? Anyone seen him lately? <laughs> Guys, AWOL? Is he even in the garden? <laughs> Taking a nap? <laughs> Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. There he is. There's the husband. Put him on hold for a second. John may have had this very scene in mind when he wrote in 1 John 2.16, All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Note this, as Eve looks, we see the lust of the flesh. The tree was good for food. And the lust of the eyes, it was a delight to her eyes. And the boastful pride of life, it was desirable to make one wise. But look more simply at verse 6 and follow the course of Eve's fall. First, it tells us that the woman saw. And then it tells us that the woman took and that the woman ate and that she gave. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave. First, she saw. She saw the tree differently from how the Lord had described it, how He had declared it. He he said back in Genesis 2.17 with a warning, don't eat this. This tree that stands here, do not eat of it. And her view was distorted by deception. So it went from being a warning, a single law of God... A point of obedience and literally discipleship. Do you realize that? People say, why did He put the tree in the garden? Discipleship. To give them the opportunity to trust Him and believe in Him and follow Him and keep His single word. Don't eat from this. She looks at it and suddenly she sees it differently. This is what the devil does and this is where sin leads. This is where temptation begins to take over is we see something we know is not good But then it starts to look, well, okay. That's all right. It's not as ugly as I used to think it was. It actually tastes pretty good. It actually has kind of a a sheen to it. And so she sees differently than what God said. She she sees it as a dietary delight. (laughs) Mmm, that looks tasty. Desirable for enlightenment. I can become wise and godly. So she saw it. Jesus said in Matthew 6.22, get this, understand this, it's a very cool word. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. That means you are with simplicity and purity, you're just seeing things clearly. How do I see things clearly? By the Word of God. Testing all things against the Word of God. Understanding how God declared this world is and what we can and cannot do and should and should not do and ought and ought not to do. 
Well, that sounds legalistic. No, it's a loving Father telling us what is real and what's true and right. And by His Word, we have clear vision. We can see, remember in Jesus, the veil is lifted. And we can actually start to see and discern and understand more clearly. Jesus says that's the deal. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is clear, your body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. You start to get that distortion, that inability to see. I told you recently the reason why I went back to glasses is I got to the point in the evening, in the dusk of evening, where things were hazy and difficult to see. Signs were not easy to read. It's not age. I just use my eyes a lot. (laughs) But David writes Psalm 101 verse 3, a classic and very important psalm to understand. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. You want to know what the deal is? Don't look at what's worthless. Just don't go there. That's getting harder and harder to do on TV these days. I think that needs to be a verse that all of us hang from our TV sets. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. We'd be like, click. (laughs) I hate those, the work of those who fall away, he writes. It shall not fasten its grip on me, he says. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. But the fastest way to know evil is to look at it. I'm not touching it. I'm not doing anything. I'm just looking. She saw She saw, and then she took. So desire now gives way to decision. Listen, decisions against sin need to be made before the fruit is in hand. Do you understand what I'm saying? Before we're in the position to sin. Maybe we haven't sinned yet, but we're there. We've gone into the bar. We've closed the bedroom door at someone's home. We've entered into a place... By the time we've entered in, we're already holding the fruit. Don't even enter in. Decisions against sin need to be made beforehand. We call decisions like that values and standards. We decide ahead of time. Teenagers decide ahead of time what is okay. Well, how do I do that? You decide by the word. What does God say is right and good and pure? Do that. What does God say is impure? Don't do that. And decide before you're in the position where you're already holding the fruit and taking it as Eve. I like Colossians 2.6, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So I'm established, I'm instructed, I'm firm, I'm rooted, and then when sin comes along, I don't even pick it up. Because I already know. It's a violation of the standard of one who is rooted in Jesus Christ. Well, she saw, she took, and then, of course, she ate, and it was over. How much did she eat? The whole piece of fruit? Half a dozen? Baker's dozen? Did she just keep eating? It didn't matter. It did not matter. One bite. That's all it took was one tiny little bite. And that's how sin works. A taste, a sample, a nibble, just just a little bit. And we think, well, if I just do a little bit, if I just have a, a taste, how many lives have been destroyed by a taste? How many lives have been completely wiped out by one small shift into sin? All she had to do was bite it. 
And I believe that's all she did. Mm. Of course, Adam's right there. Mm, she says. One bite. Galatians 5.9 tells us a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. It doesn't take much. It's never the quantity of sin, it's the quality of the choice. That once I've tasted, my heart is turned. And so she saw, she took, she ate, and then she gave, and there's Adam. Adam, who has been there, looks like he's been there the whole time. I mean, I, I think this all just happened that quickly. He's there, she's there. The servant's not talking to him, he's talking to her. He is passively sitting there, not saying a word, not sticking up for her, not standing up for her. Why do you think that is? I'm just going to guess here. (laughs) No, it's not because she was naked and offering him fruit. You've heard me say that before, haven't you? No, I, I think he didn't say a word because he wanted to eat from that tree. She was deceived. He was not. He knew they weren't supposed to. But here's an opportunity to try it out. And she just took a bite and nothing happened. And so she gave. And sin loves company. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Eve just became bad company. Why? Because she entered into sin. And Adam, I think he was right there ready to go. Among the many impacts of sin... One of the worst is its effect on other people. And that's what we often don't think about. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Nobody does something over here. And so, it was, I mean, my choice, maybe it's a bad choice, but it's just my choice. Wrong. Your sin will impact others. There's no two ways about it. Some will be wounded by the fallout of your sin. Others will follow suit and sin like you. Because they see in you, hey, it's okay. No one sins alone. Our sin gets on others. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And this is the moment of horrifying realization for Adam and Eve. Suddenly they knew the promise of enlightenment gives way to the dark dread of shame, and it's over. Death has come. Well, they didn't die immediately. God's grace extended life. But death entered the world in that moment. They immediately, their bodies immediately would have begun the process, the long, slow process of decay. And they knew they had gone one bite too far. And again, all it took was just one bite. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And that never works. Have you ever tried to sew fig leaves together? Now, I'm not speaking from experience, but just look at fig leaves. They're not that big. They're what, about the size of my hand? Trying to put that together. What are they using for thread? I mean, this is just craziness. But we got to cover up. we got to cover ourselves. You can't. You cannot cover your own sin. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. No question. I find that to be an interesting verse. Numbers, someone look this up. I think it's Numbers 32, 23. Double check me on that, Jake. Your sin will find you out. It's not that God's waiting to pounce on you. Your own sin's going to find you out. Is that right? Good. Numbers 32, 23. Your sin will find you out. That's a huge verse. You cannot cover your sin. Good deeds, extra credit, religious rituals... 
do not cover any better than fig leaves. It's almost humorous because fig leaves are so flimsy. By the way, they're also scratchy and irritating. A poor choice for underwear. I'd like to see Tommy John try to sell that. Now, banana leaves, maybe. A little smoother. Or aloe vera. That probably would have been a better choice. But amazing. Do you know that that some people have tried to discredit Genesis chapter 3? By saying that apples are not indigenous to Mesopotamia? Doy, there's no apple in the story. Can't even talk about apples. It's fruit. The closest we get to any kind of fruit that's literally mentioned, we don't know what kind of fruit was in the garden. We do know figs were because of the fig leaves. That's as close as we get to knowing. And that's why some rabbis say, as I think I said Sunday, some rabbis think that the tree was a fig tree or had fruit like a fig tree because they sowed fig leaves. I don't know if they'd go right back to the tree and pull leaves off that, but, you know. (laughs) Fast forward 4,000 years. 4,000 years from this moment. You're on a road leading into Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 11, let me just read this to you. It tells us that on the next day when they had left Bethany, which is on the other side of the Mount of Olives, so they left Bethany, came up the back side of the Mount of Olives, now they're coming down the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. And it tells us that he, that is Jesus, became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. How interesting. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Well, that's a little weird. I mean, just daily life with Jesus had to be weird. Let me just say it. I absolutely love Jesus, but he did some of the most bizarre stuff. And until you understood what he was doing, oftentimes you can imagine standing there going... Walking by and looking down, poor little fig tree. Never hurt anybody. Get Jesus some coffee, man. Clearly, he's not a morning Messiah. I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. But he curses this tree and they go on. I love the way Mark tells the story because then down in, in verse 20 of Mark chapter 11, as they were passing by in the next, this is now the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. What? Someone get Peter some coffee. Because what? (laughs) Have faith in God. What are you talking about, Jesus? Bible students, listen. The fig leaves represented trying to cover myself, trying to cover their sin. The fig tree is about covering. The fig tree is a symbol for what? Israel. And what is the law of Moses but a law that says try to cover yourself? Cover yourself with these laws. Keep these laws and you will be covered. And so they have Yom Kippur which is the Day of Atonement. Atonement means covering. For Israel, it was all about trying to stay covered from their nakedness. Trying to stay covered just long enough. But all the Jewish law in the world, as perfect as the law of God is, and it is perfect, 
Jewish law couldn't cover sin any better than fig leaves in the garden because no one could keep it. There wasn't enough thread good enough to hold the leaves together, all the leaves of the law. And so it would begin to come undone in every Jewish life, which is why Paul wrote in Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace is a mighty covering. In fact, grace is more than a covering. Grace is a cleansing. Grace doesn't just atone. The blood of Christ doesn't atone. It propitiates. It expiates. It washes clean. So that, as I said on Sunday, we can go back to being naked. That is exposed and honest and true and real with our God. Without trying to cover anything. Because we can't. It's His grace. It's His grace. His grace. Paul says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, one of my favorite sections of Scripture, for grace, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's not fig leaves. It's not religious observance. It's not all the doings of your life. No, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I left out part of it. It is the gift of God. God gives grace. Man sows fig leaves. Which do you prefer? Scratchy, itchy, irritating, falling apart, can't keep it together, or the grace of God. Well, back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, this is sad to me. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, a verse that should be so comforting and so encouraging and so sweet. Oh, there's the Lord. There's the Lord walking in the garden. There He is. Do you hear Him, Adam? Hey, Eve, I hear Him. He's here. Only that was not their response. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That's the first time we note the presence of the Lord in the Bible. The first time we recognize God coming down and being present with man and they're hiding from Him and they're running away and they've been doing it ever since. How does the presence of the Lord sound to you? When you recognize God is near, how does that sound? See, I think for me it depends. I remember the sound of my dad's car pulling into the driveway at the end of the day. And depending on the day, I loved the sound. Dad's home! Or I dreaded the sound. Dad's home. And it all depended on where my heart was. It all depended really on what I had done that day. If it had been a good day at school, if I had a good report card, if I had something good to talk to Dad about, and I heard his car driving up the drive, the sound of my father in the driveway, I'd go, Dad's home! Run downstairs. There's a scene in a Christmas story. Watch it this year. It cracks me up, but it's a scene when Ralphie has just gotten into a fight, and he's in big trouble, and he's lying on his bed, and it's the late afternoon, and the misty light is just filtering into his room, and he hears his dad drive up the drive, and he goes, he'll know the things I said, the terrible things I said. Meanwhile, his little brother Randy is downstairs crying because daddy's going to kill Ralphie. (laughs) So there are times when my father would drive in, and I'd go, dad's home, and times when he'd drive in, and I'd go, oh, man. Dad's home. I can hear the belt coming out of the loops. (laughs) How does the presence of the Lord sound to you? 
Because for Adam and Eve, rather than jumping up and running to the Lord God in the garden, as I'm sure they had done other times, they ran away and they hid from His presence. And in verse 9, the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Okay, in case anybody missed this, this is the Lord God. He knows where they are. Where are you, he says. And then he said, verse 10, no, no, no. And then Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He's still hiding, you know. So he's calling out from behind a tree here. And by the way, when God says, where are you? The short answer to the question is lost. For the first time, Adam and Eve are lost and afraid in the garden. And in verse 10, he calls back, and this is the first time, this is the first time that man is afraid in the Bible. And he's afraid of God. And it's not a holy fear. It's a terror. It's a guilty fear. Why? Because the moment Adam and Eve bit into the fruit, the moment they ate their simplicity and purity unto Christ was lost. Gone. So I hid myself. Verse 11, And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, your view of God will color how you hear that. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat? I mean, there are people that read Genesis 3 that way. Here's the mean God kicking them out of the garden. Right? Rachel, this is Joseph. See, the daily kids on occasion will do biblical plays, and I really, I hope you guys like video these. And Joe, were you God, bro? <laughs> so I'm sorry to call you out, but I think you played it beautifully. So he's playing the role of God, and they're doing this whole scene from the garden, and, and what was the exact. Pack up your stuff and get out of here. <laughs> well said, bro. But, but how you read this, how you hear God. Where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you, or, have, or do you hear, where are you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now again, the Lord knew the answer to all these questions. He knew, so what's he doing? Seems to me he's offering the opportunity for confession. You know, he's not pouncing in harsh judgment. He's saying, okay, tell me what's up. I know, but let me know. Talk to me. What if Adam had responded, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What if Adam had said, yes, Lord. We ate. We're so sorry. We were tempted and deceived, but this was our fault. We disobeyed you. Oh Lord, forgive us. What if Adam had said that? I wonder. We'll never know. I mean, would it have made any difference to the consequence? Probably not. You know, once you sin, there's always consequence. Oh, God offers forgiveness. He offers healing. He offers restoration. But there's always consequence. Be sure your sin will find you out. 
But before the punishment, before the curses are leveled in this chapter, God is giving Adam and Eve an opportunity to own up. As James 5.16, James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, so that you may be healed. Confess! How if I confess, they'll know. We already do! We already know that we're all a bunch of sinners. And I've had the conversation more times than I can count when someone sits down in my office and says, i got to tell you something. And I need you to pray for me, but i just got to confess this. And they share as if I'm going to be shocked. And I often will say the same thing. When I say often, I don't mean every week, but when, when these conversations happen, and they happen from time to time, I'll say, okay, that's not new to me. You know, there's nothing that surprises me that people say anymore. And I've heard some stuff. I mean, you're a mess. Listen, we are capable of deep, dark sin. When we confess, God can work with that. When we confess, healing can come and restoration and simplicity and purity can return to our lives. So we'll just confess. Yes, I messed it up. Yes, I blatantly disobeyed you, Lord. And I, I really do wonder what it would have been like if Adam had. But they didn't confess. <laughs> they just played the blame game. Verse 12, the man said, The woman who you gave to me, and she gave me from the tree, and I ate. So there's a double blame here by Adam. There's... <laughs> Amazing. Adam indirectly blames, actually blames God. Well, you gave her to me. If you hadn't given her to me, and, and she's the one. So indirectly blaming God, directly he's blaming Eve. Dennis Prager says, as psychiatrist Abraham Tversky puts it, human beings need four things. Air, food, drink, and someone to blame. <laughs> and so Adam blames God indirectly, then blames Eve. God turns to Eve. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, so he's still offering opportunity for confession. Eve still right in that moment could have said, I ate, you told me not to, I did, I'm so sorry. But instead she says, the serpent, (laughs) the serpent deceived me and I ate. Everybody's blaming everybody else. You're just kind of going down the line until you get to the serpent. He's like, "Uh, uh, uh, uh." (laughs) well, who's he going to (laughs) blame? Blame game. But the Lord, the Lord gave both the man and the woman an opening for confession. You know what? Even when we're caught fruit handed, confession is always best. Yeah. I, I took from it. Yes, I ate it. Confession is always healing. Man, when we understand that, we can get free of the sin that otherwise entraps us and crushes us. Psalm 32, verse 5, David writes, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And by the way, you don't have anything to confess to me. You confess to Jesus. You tell Him. And I want to caution you here. Because sometimes in discipleship relationships, and Jake's going to be talking a lot about discipleship in days to come very soon to come. But in discipleship relationships, sometimes we feel like for the confession to be legit, I have to go to the person who's my teacher, my mentor, my disciple. I have to confess to them. No, you don't. You have to confess to Jesus. 
Oh, good. Well, then I just won't tell anyone. Well, see, (laughs) it's helpful to have a brother or sister in Christ there. But husbands, if you fall, why don't you go tell your wife? Oh, she can't know. Well, I hope she can know. Because if she can't know, you're in trouble. Wives, confess to your husbands. I felt led to this. I was deceived in this. I sinned in this way. Help me pray to the Lord to be free of this. Sisters, tell sisters. Brothers, talk to brothers. I don't advise brothers talking to sisters unless they're married. And I do not advise sisters getting counsel from their brothers unless they are married. All right? But confess one to another before the Lord Jesus. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, guess what we do? Like Satan, we call him a liar. And his word is not in us. Well, verse 14 through verse 19 are the curses, and we're going to deal with those on Sunday, so skip down to verse 20. It's just the way it turned out for our study through this week, and I'm really excited to tell everybody, welcome to Sunday morning, we're going to deal with curses today. (laughs) But we'll deal with these because they're intricate and they're meaningful, and we want to take more time than I've got tonight to do it. So down in verse 20, after leveling curses to the serpent and to Satan, and curses to the woman and the man, after laying all of this out, and here's what's coming, because of their choice to sin, because of their abject rebellion to God... The curses are lowered. And verse 20 says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And if there was ever a more out of place verse in the Bible, I don't know. Because the verse right before it just said, For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So the man called his wife's name living. (laughs) What? Why is verse 20 there? I would think verse 20 would have been back better like right after. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In fact, let's call her Eve. Hava. Living. It's a weird place to put this verse. So why is it here? Two reasons that I will tell you on Sunday. But let me ask you another question. (laughs) What's the first death in the Bible? Verse 21, we read it. Then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Death happened that day. The first death in the Bible. Garments of skin could only come from the death of an animal. And so what we see in verse 21 is the first recorded death on earth. And you know what it was? It was a sacrifice to cover. A sacrifice is made to cover the man and the woman from their shame in their nakedness that drew right out of their sin. A sacrifice to cover. And that's the thing, from Adam and Eve all the way up to Moses, there was opportunity to get covering through sacrifice, through offering, and then the Mosaic Law was given and it was delineated specifically. Five different animal sacrifice offerings in the book of Leviticus, each one specific each one having a different aspect to it, but, but all of it cost massive amounts of blood. It was said on the day of Passover that blood ran ankle deep in the temple. Why? We've got to cover sin. 
And sin is a bloody mess. And if you're going to cover, that's what it takes. It must take blood. How much better the garments of salvation? As Isaiah said, Isaiah 61.10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, Indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. That's out there ahead of us. Our eternal dwelling, our glorified selves. The garments of salvation. But the first garments of covering were from the sacrifice of the animal. Now watch this, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, like Echad of us. That unity of oneness. There are some who say God is referring to the generic one of us. They'll become, you know, like God and angels. I don't think so. I don't think, I think the language still indicates the Trinity, even here. Like one of us, and he's speaking, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now, watch the grace, he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God immediately will bar the way to the Garden of Eden. And some might say, well, nice takes away the opportunity to live forever. No, what God just did was take away the opportunity to live forever in a corrupted, sinful state. How many of you would want that? When I think about living forever, I don't want to live forever in this world, as is right now. I mean, I'm a little over half a century, and it's already almost long enough. Almost. I'm, I'm hanging out, hon. I'll be here, hopefully, you know, Lord willing. No, I don't want to live in this world. I'm sick of this world. Not what God's created, not the beauty of creation and the wonder of fellowship and the joy of love and and walking in Jesus. That's all good. But this world? Are you kidding me? With death and murder and mayhem and politics? (laughs) I'm so sick and tired of Washington, D.C. I got to tell you, I'm just sick of it. It is non-stop. It's just pure vitriol. Side against side. Nobody's getting anything done because they're all hating each other. I don't want to live that way. Does anybody really want to live this way forever? God said, you know what? (laughs) See, He knows us. He knows that we'd be going back. People already have. They've tried to find the garden. They're already trying to get back. They already want the fountain of living water. They already want to live forever. But not in sin. Not in corruption. Not as our bodies get older and older. I think the fourth, third, the third Indiana Jones trilogy did it really well. You know, the one with the Holy Grail and he goes in there, there, there's the old knight standing there guarding the Grail and the guy's like dust. I mean, he's really, really old, but he's still living. That's a good picture. Just, I mean, think about whatever age you are, think about the physical ailments that you have right now. Do you want to live this way forever? I don't want to get up every morning for the eternity with a sore back. I don't want it. And I'm going on and on to make a point here. God bars the way because of grace. Because He knows we're foolish enough to try and live forever in these bodies. He has better for us. Therefore, verse 23, 
The Lord sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And this is just amazing. The way this ends. The gate of the Garden of Eden faced east. Just like the gate of the temple. The entrance to the temple, into the holy place, and then the entrance into the holy of holies, you entered from the west, but it faced to the east. It was said by the rabbis that you could stand at the entrance. You could stand in the holy of holies. Or at least just this side of the, of the veil. You could stand there before the veil. You could look straight out through the holy place, out through the eastern gate of the temple, and out right out to the Mount of Olives, and you could see the east rising sun. The temple faced east, just as the Garden of Eden faced to the east. Messiah ultimately will come through the eastern gate of the temple. He comes by way of the east. The garden faces to the east. And it is believed by the early rabbis, and again, this is rabbinical, so it's not biblical, don't just buy this, but they think that perhaps the early sacrifices, like Abel bringing the firstlings of his flock, that that sacrifice was offered right here at the east entrance to the Garden of Eden. Right there. Why? Well, God stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword at the east of Eden. He stationed the cherubim. First of all, note that cherubim is plural, so two. Two cherubim And as Adam and Eve departed the garden, heading out the way of the east, had they looked back, they might well have seen the two cherubim standing opposite each other with blood sprinkled on the ground from the sacrifice of their covering. Are you getting the picture? Do you know what that is? It's the mercy seat. The mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant with the two cherubim. And every year at Yom Kippur, the Lord God graphically replays this at the mercy seat as the priest would come in, the high priest, once a year and sprinkle the blood seven times onto the mercy seat. Leviticus 16.14 Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east. And also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Why? Well, partially because Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make covering atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. So you have replay, you have the scene at the east gate of the Garden of Eden, the two cherubim, where sacrifice took place, the blood of the covering for Adam and Eve, right there. It's replayed again and again all throughout the history of Israel, there in the temple, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. And greater still, Mary saw something, infinitely greater, as she looked into the empty tomb. Think about this, John 20 verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. What's that? It's the mercy seat. From the garden to the temple to the tomb, God has replayed this picture again and again for us. And check this out. The word stationed 
In the Hebrew, he stationed the cherubim, stationed his yaskin, which is the same root word as Shekinah. As in the Shekinah glory of God. But the word itself, yaskin, literally means enthroned. Enthroned? Well, there's a further picture here. Revelation 5, verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, the cherubim, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. The perfect sacrifice. Jesus, at what would be the seat of mercy, the throne of grace in heaven. And you know what's remarkable about the lamb, the little lamb slain? Revelation 13.8 tells us the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. That even before the man and the woman sinned, the plan was laid in. God knew what He was going to do even before the fall. One last thing I'll tell you tonight, and then we'll stop for now. While the sin itself was defiance of the Lord God's command, what was the catalyst? What was the catalyst of Eve's sin? That is, how did she play it out? Look at verse 6 again. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she watched this. She took from its fruit and ate. She took and she ate. She took and she ate. And that's the sin played out. She took and she ate. Fast forward again, 4,000 years. Matthew 26, 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and after a blessing broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. Take, eat. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. What I'm telling you here is our Lord Jesus Christ took and ate of sin and death. As Adam and Eve took and ate and death entered the world, so the second Adam, Jesus, took and ate and he gave the words, take and eat, brand new meaning. He turned these verbs of sin into verbs of salvation. Take and eat. Take and eat. Take of my body and eat. Take of my blood and drink. Amazing. I think God knows what He's doing. I think He's got a plan. A plan of amazing grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word to us tonight. And I just ask that You will help us. Lord, help us to maintain simplicity and purity. Help us to continue to look to the cross. Help us to continue to kneel before You at Your feet, Lord Jesus. Help us never to forget the one sacrifice, the only sacrifice in all history that didn't just atone, but cleansed us of all sin. A sacrifice that provides not garments of skin, but garments of salvation. May we never, Lord Jesus, forget what You've done. More so, may we never wander from from You in our lives, from Your presence, Lord. Lord, I don't want to be one who hears You moving about my house and runs and hides. May we have a simple, pure relationship with You such that when we hear You, 
Will we run to You? May we be a people desiring Your presence. A presence, Lord, that You restored by the body and blood of Jesus. And so we thank You. We thank You that we can come into fellowship with You and walk with You, be loved by You, and and love You back. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. If you have anything to confess to the Lord, if you have anything you want to clear up with Him, if you've been running and hiding, why don't you come and confess? Get it off your chest. Open your heart to the Lord. Be healed. If there's someone you need to pray for or something else going on in your life that you want to lift up to God, I invite you to come. Let's stand and sing together.